I'd like to thank you for praying for my family and I as we, we made a, a quick run to Wyoming this week and uh, for a, a, a family funeral, unexpected family funeral. And I appreciate your prayers for the funeral and for our time as a family. Uh, we, we were traveling across South Dakota on Thursday. So if you remember Thursday, I don't know what it was like here, but it was um, 35 miles an hour on I-90 going across South Dakota. We stopped counting the trucks that we saw in the ditch and the campers and the, and the cars, and we just prayed like crazy that, that it wasn't us. <laughs> so, but we made it, and we had, a, we had a nice time with our family in Wyoming, and then we beat feet back here yesterday. So... We are looking at what it means to, to live as a disciple of Christ. We're looking at these, these weeks at what, what does it mean to follow Jesus Christ and what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Today we're coming across the, the idea of prayer, the topic of prayer, and I've titled our message today, The Transforming Power of Prayer. Now this isn't our, our, our camp spot today, but Second Chronicles 16, verse 9, the first part of it says this, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards him. I'm struck by the fact that God is on the lookout. His eyes are constantly scanning the earth. He's looking for the man, the woman, the child whose heart is wholly committed to him. He's looking to bless. He's looking to strengthen, to encourage, to empower to carry out his work and his will. God is seeking the person who was committed to him so that God can pour out himself in that life. We all desire to lead a life of impact, a life of, of influence. I'm told that the millennial generation seeks to be involved in things that make a significant impact in the world. And as a church, we're told by the experts that we need to capture the imagination of the millennials. We need to have programs that are, that are, a, are a tangible way, a tangible vehicle for getting millennials out into the world so they can say that they've made an impact. And as a church, we're always looking for ways to influence our city, to make a big impact in the culture or the world around us. We're asking ourselves, how can we invest our time, our money, our resources so that we can have maximum impact in the world? And I often, over the years in ministry, have asked myself the question, what is, what's the secret key to our community for us to have effective outreach? What is that secret key? And I, just as an aside, I would also thank you for praying this week on Wednesday night. You know we had a community meeting here sponsored by the Chaska Police Department. Um, on an unpleasant topic, and I, I, your prayers are much appreciated. That meeting went very, very well, and I think even God was honored in this place, even in a police department community meeting. Uh, so thank you for praying for that as well. We desire to reach out into our community. We desire to have an impact. So I don't intend to minimize those things today. But my hope today as we focus on the topic of prayer is to emphasize the truth is God's not concerned about our programs. God's not concerned about our methods. He's not concerned about our strategies as much as he is our person. 
God is looking for a person. God is looking for a person who is wholly committed to him. World changers are not program managers. They are God seekers. Let's think about it. When, when God set out to set the people of Israel free, he went looking for Moses. When God wanted a king for Israel, he sought out the young man, David, known as a, God, as a, a man after God's own heart. When he wanted to restore the city of Jerusalem, he called on Nehemiah. When he needed someone to bring his son into the world, he looked for a young lady by the name of... Oh, that was pathetic. That was pathetic. Thank you. Who said that? Thank you. Mary. Mary. Sorry, I caught you off guard there. I didn't mean to make a test out of it this morning. When he needed someone to pour out his spirit, he looked for a group of disciples who he had told to gather in the upper room to fast and to pray, to seek him, for him to move. So when he poured out his spirit, he went right to them. When he needed to take the gospel to the known world, he found a, a man by the name of Saul. When he needed to, to disciple the, the passionate preacher, Apollos, in the book of Acts, he called on a, a couple by the name of Priscilla and Aquila to help him better understand the gospel. When God needed a pastor to shepherd the churches at Ephesus, he sought out a young man by the name of Timothy. Do you get the pattern here? Do you get the idea? God is looking. God is scanning to and fro across the whole earth looking for a person who's wholly committed to him. Somehow, God has channeled his power, his mission, and his gospel through the lives of men and women who are wholly committed to him. So if you want to be a world changer, if you want to have an influence, if you want to have an impact, if you want to see the Lord lifted up, if you want to see the gospel taken out to the world, you need, first of all, to be a God seeker. So as we consider what it means to follow Christ, to be a disciple of his, we come to the topic of prayer. It's a topic that we make a lot of assumptions about. It's a topic we don't talk about very much. It's a topic that most followers of Christ will admit to not being very strong in. We assume we all know how to pray. We assume that we all practice it. But I fear that the result is that many of us have never plumbed the depths of this aspect of our relationship of Christ, with Christ. And if we are honest, our prayer life looks pretty casual compared to the prayers of the Old Testament and the New Testament. How many of us, as we were reading from the, the book of prayer this morning, longed for that kind of prayer as we recited that together? How many of us felt moved in our spirit because I wish I could pray like that? Many times we, we define prayer as simply talking and listening to God, and that's true. Again, I don't want to minimize that, but it's only good as far as it goes. I suggest that if we want to be world changers, we want to experience the kind of intimacy that God is looking for, that God is desiring to give to us. I believe that we all want to attain. You have to be practiced in the kind of prayer that wrestles with God. And so I'd like to talk about that this morning. And I'm talking to me as much as I'm talking to you this morning. So I'm not exempt. I don't come to you as an expert. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 32, if you would.
There's a moment in each of our lives when God becomes real. There's a moment when, when the gospel becomes personal. There's a time when your relationship with God turns from rote religion or words on a page, and it becomes real. It becomes life-giving. It becomes life-transforming. I submit to you today that, that life transformation like this only comes through prayer that is transparent, that is urgent, and I'm going to say prayer that is even demanding. So Genesis 32 is the story of Jacob. It's the story of his moment of transformation. You see, Jacob was born into the promises of God. Did you catch this morning as we read the prayer? said the promises were given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Did you catch that? In fact, the Old Testament, the, the stories, especially of Genesis and Exodus and those historical narratives are all chosen because they track the promise of God through the generations. Some say it tracks the seed of Abraham because God is interested in fulfilling his promise to Abraham. And so he set Jacob apart from birth for this purpose. He set him aside to be the recipient of the promise and the transmitter of the promise to the people of Israel. But here's the problem. We come to chapter 32, and it's a, it's a pinnacle. It's a culmination point for Jacob and his life. You see, Jacob had a, a problem, and it was no small problem. Okay, Romanian word coming up here. He was a schmeckier. Can you say that with me? Schmeckier. You have to roll your R when you say it. Schmeckier. So what does that mean? What does a schmeckier mean? It's a Romanian word that aptly describes the character of Jacob. It means to trick. It means to con. It means to deal under the table. He was the kind of man that you would play a shell game with, and he would win every time because he cheats. Jacob was a schmeckier. Jacob, Jacob understood who God was. Jacob understood the promises, understood what God was doing, but yet Jacob thought that he needed to do everything by his own power. Jacob thought he needed to manipulate everything. He needed to manage everything. He needed to control everything. Jacob was a schmeckier. So time doesn't allow me to get into the story of his life this morning. You'll have to read more about his fascinating life in the book of Genesis, all leading up to chapter 32. Suffice it to say that here in chapter, through all, chapter 32, all of Jacob's conniving, all of his trickery, all of his schmeckeria was about to come crashing down on him in, in chapter 32. Specifically, his brother Esau, who he had defrauded some years ago, was hot on his trail for revenge and was about to overtake him. On top of that, his father-in-law, father Laban, was also very angry with him because of Jacob's dealings with him over his daughters and his livestock. Jacob, under the blessing of God, became a wealthy man, and his father-in-law thought it was at his expense. You could say, you should say, it's obvious that Jacob had burned all of his bridges behind him, and now he was fleeing. At that moment, he was trapped. They were coming after him, and there was nowhere to go. So as you read chapter 32, you see Jacob sending his servants, and it's, it's amazing the resources that he's pouring into this. 
He sends a wave of people, servants, and gifts, uh, animals laden with gifts to send to his brother Esau. He's coming and he's trying to assuage his anger by sending him gifts. If I, if I remember right, there were four different waves of people and animals and gifts that were sent after Esau. Hey, I love you, brother. How about that? Come on, you're really not that mad at me, are you? Here's some more gifts. I'll keep pouring out the gifts until finally maybe I can break through your anger this morning. And then Jacob was found himself alone. He, he sent his family across the river. He sent everything finally across the river. And the idea, we suppose, is that if he got caught by his brother Esau, that his family at least would be safe. And that's where we pick up the story. Jacob is alone in the dead of, a, of a, a wilderness night. So let's read chapter 32. Start at verse 22. The same night he arose and he took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. I'm trying to imagine the size of that family. Just look at that description. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask me my name? And, and there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel. Say, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Amen. Somewhere in the darkness and the despair of that night, a man appeared. It just says a man appeared. And the next thing we see is that they're wrestling. We don't know why. Jacob wrestled with such passion and fervor that the man couldn't win. And so he touched Jacob's hip and he put it out of joint. So who was this man? Verse 28 gives us a clue. Then he said, You're, um, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. The man was God, probably pre-incarnate Jesus Christ himself. Another clue is that he needed to leave by dawn so that Jacob wouldn't see his face. God's very concerned about us not seeing all of his glory. And he needed to leave by dawn so Jacob couldn't see him. 
So the question, we just beg the question, what were they wrestling about? A man appeared and they started wrestling. There's not much pretext here, but verse 27 is our clue. I'm sorry, verse 26. Let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. You see, Jacob wasn't wrestling against God. Jacob was wrestling with God to seize upon the blessing that God had for him. We need to understand this. And as I, as I read this and read some commentaries on this particular passage, it just struck me that this was the end of Jacob as he knew himself. This was the end as he understood himself. He knew that he was the recipient of the promise. Yet all of his life he had spent arranging, conniving, managing things to go his own way. His was a life of self-reliance, of walking in the name of God, but not in a relationship with God. And all of his tricks, all of his conniving, all of his schmeckeria were all coming home to roost. And Jacob had nowhere else to go. Jacob was doing like many of us do. He was saving his prayers for emergency situations. We only call on God when we're hanging off a cliff. We only call on God when the enemy is closing in. We only call on God when the food is about to run out. The rest of the time, we're content with not seeking God at all. But this time was different for Jacob. Jacob was wrestling. Jacob was wrestling with passion. Jacob left nothing on the table. His pride, his self-centeredness, his confidence, his strength, his wisdom, his man-made wisdom, he was throwing it all over, and he was calling on God. And I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out on a limb and say that he was demanding that God show himself strong, compassionate, and merciful. Jacob was at the end of himself. Jacob was leaving nothing on the table. He was going for it. God, I, I'm pursuing you with my whole heart today. And that day, God would become personal. God would become strong. God would become real. God would become powerful. God would become the God of Jacob. And it was a wrestling match. The text says that the man couldn't prevail over Jacob. Now, tell the truth. Do you, do you really think that God couldn't prevail over Jacob? Of course he could. Of course he could. You see, God was waiting to see the persistence and the determination of Jacob. The determination to let himself go. The determination to just surrender everything to God. He was giving up. He was letting go, and he was giving God the central place in his life. God is seeking. God is searching to and fro over the entire earth, and he's looking for a man. He's looking for a person who is willing to lay it all on the line for him. God is looking for the person who will seek him with this kind of passionate wrestling prayer. So what were the results of Jacob's wrestling prayer? 
The obvious one is that he got a new name. Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have, have prevailed. His identity was changed. His name and his identity was given by God himself. God rewarded Jacob for his passionate pursuit. You have striven with God and you have striven with men and you have prevailed. Someone was once asked, how can you tell a person of prayer? How can you tell a person that is sold out passionately for Christ? And the answer, they walk with a limp. They walk with a limp because they have poured out themselves in prevailing prayer with the Lord Jesus Christ. There's one more result that's seen at the end of chapter 33. And through the events of chapter 33, Jacob And from the sons, of, in verse 19, and from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. God is a mighty God for Israel. I didn't do the study myself, but I understand that this is the first time that Jacob has called on God as a personal God. This is the first time that Jacob has bowed his knee and said, God is my God. God is mighty for Israel, for me. That's amazing. Jacob's wrestling was a moment of transformation. It was a moment of entering into the depths of who God is. You see, God seeks the person who engages in prevailing prayer. So let's look at the power of prayer. When we look at prayer in this way, we begin to see it all over Scripture. In Exodus chapter 2, the people of Israel cried out to God for help. Groanings. God heard their groanings. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, Hannah pleaded with God to give her a child. In Isaiah 62, verse 7, Isaiah promised to give God no rest. Jeremiah said he would cling to God like a belt clings to a waist. In Jeremiah 13, the psalmist longs for God to hear my cry, O God, for I am in desperate need to hear the prevailing prayer. According to Hebrews 5, 7, Jesus himself offered up prayers with fervent cries and with tears. He wept over Jerusalem. He pleaded with his father to release him from his pending fate as he, as he spent the night in Gethsemane in prayer, passionate, prevailing prayer. Jonathan Edwards recounts the amazing presence of God in all that was happening in the first great awakening. In every home, in every home in New England during the first great awakening, God seemed to be showing himself present and powerful. Edwards tells the story of four-year-old Phoebe Bartlett, four years old. According to her mother, Phoebe's prayers sounded unusual. Listen to this, how it was described. Phoebe was pleading with God. She said this, her voice seemed to be as, one, as of one exceeding importunate and engaged. A four-year-old girl importunate and engaged. 
Now, we should have that word importunate in our vocabulary. We don't. It's a lost word. But importunate prayer is prayer that continually pulls on the robe of God. It's, it's pleading a case. It's seeking his blessing, just as Jacob did at Peniel, just as the, as the woman did as she pulled on the, the robe and knocked on the door of the judge, the ruler. Remember that story? Luke chapter 18. Persistent prayer. It's called importunate prayer. And here's this four-year-old girl during the first great awakening, four years old, and her mom says, this is weird. This is unusual. She's calling out to God. She's pleading with God. <coughs> She's begging God. It's importunate prayer coming out of a four-year-old girl, making a case, seeking his blessing. Jonathan Edwards looked at the prayers of David Brainerd. David Brainerd left him his journal. David David Brainerd was one of the great prayer warriors of history, working with Native Americans. Brainerd's prayers were the boiler room of revival. Edwards said this. Edwards saw his, his journal, and he said this. His prayers seemed to flow from the fullness of his heart, as deeply impressed with a great and solemn sense of our necessities and of God's infinite greatness, excellency, and sufficiency rather than from a warm and fruitful brain. Did you get that? Brainerd, in his passion for prayer, knew what the needs of the people were around him, knew exactly how to pray for people. But on the, on the other hand, he also knew the greatness and the goodness of God. And Jonathan Edwards said, you know what? That doesn't come from just a, a preacher up there who preaches once a week. That doesn't come from somebody who just shoots up a casual prayer over dinner time. That comes from somebody who's wrestling with God in prayer. That comes from prevailing prayer. That comes from not a warm and fruitful mind, but from a heart that has been worked out in the closet of prayer. Thank you for that. You see, God is seeking to and fro across the earth. He's seeking the person whose heart is fixed on him. So do you long to see God in his fullness? And I believe we all do. Do you long to be used by God for mighty works that impact the world around you? And I believe we'd all say yes and amen. But brothers and sisters, the journey begins at Peniel. The journey begins at Peniel, the wrestling with God. So I ask the question, as we look at some of the hindrances to prayer, I ask myself the question, why, why isn't this kind of prayer the hallmark of our faith? Why isn't the centrality of my faith? You see, the Lord modeled this kind of prayer for his disciples. He taught it to his disciples. The Lord Jesus retreated from ministry. He, he left ministry, and he went off all night to pray. One, 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 one commentator said, prevailing prayer is not overcome by sleep. Hmm. Jesus taught his disciples the principles of prayer. This, in the last few months, we looked at the Lord's Prayer in, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, and he gave us that Lord's Prayer so that we could understand what prayer could and should look like. These are the elements of prayer. He gave us the parables that describe importunate prayer, pleading with God, interceding for others, pulling on God's robe is what I like to picture it as, pulling on God's robe like a small child and saying, here I am. And I'm not going away until you bless me. 
Paul tells us to pray without ceasing. His prayers in the epistles, all the, the letters of the New Testament that were authored by Paul, they all, all these prayers of Paul serve as models of prayer for us today. So I ask the question again, so why don't we pray? Why, why is this not the benchmark, the hallmark, the, the, the centrality of our prayer life? Let me give a few things, a few options to answer that question with. First of all, the culture. I love to blame things on the culture. Okay, let's blame it on the culture. Culture has taught us to multitask. The culture has taught us that sitting still and being quiet isn't where it's at. You should be on your phone. You should be on your iPad. You should be on your computer. You should be talking to somebody. You should be texting somebody. And at the same time, you can be doing this. You can have the stereo on. You can have the TV on. You can be doing this. You can be doing that. You can multitask. Well, guess what? Prevailing prayer doesn't fit in that formula. There is no X equals prevailing prayer in that algebraic formula. There just isn't. And that goes along with the next thing, that we have an inability to listen. We have an inability to be still. We have an inability to be quiet. And listen, I'm not talking to you now. I'm just talking to me. Because I have to have the stereo on all the time. I've got to have, listen to talk radio. I've got to listen to a, a, a messages. I, I, need to, I, need to, I just need to have noise around me all the time. But if, you're, if, you're, if you want to have prevailing prayer, if you want to be used by God in this way, if you, want, if you want to be like Jacob and say, I will not leave this place until you bless me, then multitasking and afraid of silence and afraid of the quiet and afraid to be still in a room just with you and God, you, you can't have both. And so the culture tells us, man, you've got to be busy. You've got to be going. You've got to be doing this and you've got to be doing that. No, I need to be alone in the night and I need to wrestle with that man. And I need to go to Peniel. And some would call it the prayer closet. Another thing that gets in the way is that we don't have time. Uh, let me rephrase that. We don't take the time. How many of us have ever said about finances, about anything else, I can tell, I can tell what your priorities are by the way you spend your money and by the way you spend your time. So we say we don't have the time, but God is wondering if we don't take the time. And then we get deeper into this equation and we realize that we don't take the effort to pray. This kind of prevailing prayer is, takes effort. It takes work. It takes time. It, it, takes, it takes breaking through with God. It takes prevailing with God. It takes wrestling on, on that lonely side of the river until God relents, until God says, you know, I, I can't take this guy. I can't win. I guess I'll bless him. Now, the danger of this, I don't want to leave it right there because the danger of this is, is that somehow God, is, God doesn't want to bless us. In this wrestling with Jacob, it's somehow, well, God, I don't want to give this up, but he just keeps coming. But we know that's not true. We know that God is seeking to and fro across the earth looking for the person who he can pour out his blessing into we can pour out his strength into and his grace into. See, he's not looking to withhold. God is looking to pour out. God is looking to bless. And so we, but we don't want to take the time. We don't want to take the effort. We don't want to make the, take the work of prayer, the sacrifice that prayer is, this kind of prayer. 
And then another obstacle that we face is our lack of perseverance. We're not willing to press through. At the slightest little, oh, God doesn't hear my prayer. God isn't answering. God doesn't, God's not responding. I quit. I quit. And then I wonder if we don't have a distorted view of God's sovereignty sometimes. And I catch myself at this often. Why should I pray? If God is sovereign, God's going to do it anyway. If God's seeking to and fro across the earth, he's going to find his guy anyway. He doesn't have to look here. I don't need to ask about it. But somehow in God's economy, he has limited his gospel outreach, his message to the world through people like us, like you and me, who are passionately committed to doing it. And that means passionate, prevailing prayer. I don't understand why God doesn't just do this himself, but he's limited it to you and to me. And therefore, we need to persevere. We need to understand God's sovereignty and how we play a role in that. God is asking us, just ask. You don't have it because you haven't asked for it. And then we go deeper into this, into this obstacle. And we have to ask ourselves, we have to admit to ourselves sometimes, do I really trust God? You see, Jacob, Jacob worked. Jacob knew who God was. Jacob knew who the God of, of Israel, I, I catch myself coming around, he is Israel. Jacob knew the God of Abraham and his father Isaac. He knew that. And we can know all the stuff. We can have all the intellectual power of knowing God's word. But Jacob didn't have that, not until Peniel, not until he wrestled with that man on that lonely side of the river. Then it worked into his heart. But until then, Jacob didn't trust God enough to let God do it, to let God have his way. Instead, he chose to manage and, and manipulate, chose to be a schmeckier. Sometimes we don't trust God, so we don't give it to him in prayer. I've got one more thing. Um, and you might have more things to add to this list. Let me end my list with this. I think we have disappointment with God sometimes. Because God doesn't seem to answer his, our prayers the way we think he should. God doesn't answer his prayer on the timetable that we think he should. And therefore, I'm disappointed, and therefore, I go quiet. Somebody could say amen right there. I mean, we don't want to say amen right there, though, do we? We don't want to admit that. I don't understand God. I'm disappointed in God. Why did he let me go through this? Why did, why did that person betray me? Why did this happen? Why did that happen? Why is God silent? And so we get disappointed with God, and so we, we stop asking. We stop praying. We could, we could spend a sermon on each one of those obstacles and working through each of those things, those attitudes that keep us from a life of profound prayer. Today, for today's direction... I see each one of those things as, as topics of prayer for us to wrestle with. 
if I said something, if that list jumped off the page to you and you said, yes, I don't want to admit that, but he just nailed it on, on, on the head for me. Then that's what you need to take into the prayer closet and you need to get into a wrestling match with God over that until he works it out in you. At Peniel, Jacob wrestled with whatever it was that stood between him and God's blessing. He left it all on the table. He was transparent. He was humble. He was desperate. You see, prevailing prayer begins at Peniel. It begins by laying down our failures. It begins by repenting of our sin. It, it, it begins by seeking a breakthrough to overcome the obstacles. It begins by pleading with God to show himself in his fullness in my life. Somehow, when I look at the power of prayer, the urgency of prayer, the depth of prayer that God is seeking, my own prayer life comes up short. One author said it this way, our prayer has become too casual. I wonder if most of us would say that in comparison to what we have seen today, and that's part of my goal today, is to paint the big picture of it so that we can see our prayer life in light of it. And listen to me. Gratitude is very much a part of our prayer life. Gratitude is very much a part of our faith. But if my prayer only consists of mealtime gratitude, then I'm not in prevailing prayer. It doesn't compare to Peniel. If my prayers are only reserved for emergency situations, it's not a Peniel prayer. Charles Finney said it like this, Urgent prayer is like discovering loved ones caught in a house fire. He prayed all of his life for his, his kids to come to know Christ. And none of them did until he passed away. And then every one of his children came to Christ. You see, that is prevailing prayer. I mentioned that we went to an, an unexpected funeral this week out in Wyoming. Part of our extended family was there. Much of our extended family was there on Sandy's side of the family. We have been praying for years, off and on. We've been praying that God would intervene in some of our relatives on the extended, in the extended family. And we've seen some rays of hope, we've seen some disappointments, and we keep praying, Lord, would you break into those hearts? We love them. They're great people. We love them as part of our family, but they don't know you. Would you come and invade their family? So the other morning at the hotel, I was talking to one of, our, one of, one of Sandy's family, a young man. Now, over the last 10 or 15 Christmases, if, if you went around the room as we gathered for Christmas and you said, which one of these people was going to come to Christ? You'd look at this young man and you'd say, there is not a snowball's chance. He, went, he was telling us about his girlfriend. He was telling about his life, and we were having a wonderful conversation with him, which doesn't always happen. And he said something about, well, we came to the Black Hills last, last summer because my girlfriend wanted to see the place that she was baptized, the lake that she was baptized in. 
So right then and there, I faced this decision, and I'm sure Sandy probably had the same decision. Okay, do I, do I assert a spiritual question in here? Because we're always kind of walking that tightrope, you know? Finally, I just blurted it out. I said, so your girlfriend got baptized in the Black Hills at a lake, and you came back to see, so does that mean that you're involved in a church now? And there it was, on the table. And this young man looked at me and he said, yes, I'm going to such and such a church. And then the next question is, what kind of church is it? And it was a good one. And then he began to tell, tell his story. He said, I've been caught in drugs and alcohol, and I, I, I was in a pit that I didn't know that I could ever come out of. And I went to this church, and I got to know people there, and I'm in a Bible study. We actually got onto a topic and had a theological debate right then and there. <laughs> Ten years ago, one year ago, I would have said that will never, ever, ever happen. And he he said, at my church, we have a Celebrate Recovery program. <laughs> and he said, you know, I, I was hesitant at first. You've got to understand, I'm sitting here with my mouth on the floor. And Sandy is sitting there listening, too, and her mouth is on the floor, too. And he said, you know, I've been in and out of treatment. I've tried several different treatments. And I was really reluctant to go to Celebrate Recovery because it's just another treatment program. It's just another place for me to go, a Christian 12-step. But I went, and I've been going for a year and a half, and my life has changed forever. Is that something? Where's Kathleen? Right there. Did you say amen when I... Okay. <laughs> and then he said, hang on a minute. i got to show you something. And he bolted out of the room, and he went upstairs, and he got a book. And he came back, and he showed me this book as a book on discipleship and what it means for a man, macho man, to follow Christ. And I looked at it, and I thought, man, this is amazing. And he's in a Bible study, and he told me what he's studying, and we talked in depth about it. We didn't just gloss over the top. Now, I don't know if you can call our prayer a prevailing prayer, but our kids have been praying for their cousins. We've been praying for Sandy's nieces and nephews. And over all these years, boom, one bright light shines up out of the family. And that's amazing. You see, that is prevailing prayer. That's wrestling with God and saying, I won't quit until you bless. So we keep praying. I have a handout on the back table with study questions, and it goes into how, how to pray. It goes into some techniques for praying. I, I hope you'll take a copy of that. Let me, we need to close. Let me, let me offer some thoughts for you as you think about this kind of prevailing prayer. Be more concerned about what God thinks and less concerned about what people think. The other night, here in this room, the Chaska Police Department had a, a community informational meeting on, on, on the issue of sex offender moving to Chaska. Difficult topic, and it was here in this room 
and they had asked us if we would host that meeting. And I, my training as a, as, a, as a police chaplain is that you're, you're never supposed to pray in the name of Jesus, and you're supposed to pray generic prayers, and uh, that's what a chaplain does. I have a really hard time with that. And so I, it usually just falls out, oh, I pray in the name of Jesus. I, I'm here to tell you that I really wrestled all day before that meeting. I was just, just kind of in a panic. Should I pray or should I not? This is an informational meeting with the police department. Should I assert myself? And so I finally, and should I even tell the chief that I'm going to do that or should I just kind of lay it out there? That's really what I was thinking about. Is it better to ask forgiveness than to ask permission? So I walked up to the chief that, that evening before the meeting and I, I, I couldn't do this, the schmeckier thing. So I said, do you... He had given me a few minutes, and I said, you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell a story about our, our Valley Free and how we've wrestled with these issues. And would, would you mind if I prayed? And he looked at me, and he said, it's your house. You do whatever you want to do. So we did. I offered up a prayer, and I did it in the name of Jesus. Can't not. And then I sat down. The speaker that night said, that prayer set the tone for the whole evening. And I want you, whenever, whenever I go to have these community meetings, I want you to come with me. You see, you need to be more concerned what God thinks and less concerned what people think. We need to come with an attitude of desperation. We need to be less critical and more concerned with God's view of the world than my view of the world. We need to work out his desperation to move in the world in the confines of my prayer closet. We don't work out my concerns and my critique of the world in my blog or my Facebook page or, or even from the pulpit. We do it in the prayer closet, seeking desperately to know God's desires. We need to pray bigger. We need to pray for things that only God can do. We need to think about our community. We need to think about missions. We need to pray for our government. We need to pray for people. We need to pray for circumstances. Only God is in the heart transformation business. And so, therefore, we need to pray big, and we need to pray with specificity. Hold God accountable for the work that he's doing. And then be accountable in prayer ourselves, both to God and to others. Explain what you are praying for, and hold yourself accountable to others. Yes, I'm going to keep praying for that. And then pray with others. Pray together. Pray husband and wife. Pray as a family. Pray as a church family. Pray as a life group. Pray even with your work colleagues. Pray, pray pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that this week would be a Peniel week for everyone here in this room, that we would set apart a time, that we would take the time, that we would give you our whole life in prayer, that we would wrestle with you as the man on the lonely side of the river. May, we, may you find us taking our needs, our wants, our desires, our plans, our managements, May you take all of those things, Lord Jesus, and run them through the filter of your Holy Spirit and your plan, your will, and your grace. And may we, like Jacob, may we come out with a new identity stamped on our foreheads by you, set apart for your purposes. May this be a Peniel week for us. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. On your way, rejoicing.